Oh, that's right. I never even prayed, didn't I? Okay. I'm way out of whack. Well, we'll begin with prayer. Thanks, Bob. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day that we can gather together to learn more about you, who you are, and what you've done for us. We do pray, Lord, you give us wisdom, wisdom that comes from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in this section in Proverbs 2, verses 12 through 15, where we're going to talk about the first temptation that we can be delivered from if we have wisdom that comes from God's word. It says, to deliver you, this is the purpose of this wisdom, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Now here the first temptation that we're going to be delivered from is that of the one who speaks perverse things. And one tip I want to show you is that both here in verse 12 and also, does somebody have, by the way, their Bible open? Can they look at Proverbs 2.16? Do you have that? I just want you to see that this idea of speaking perverse things is something that both the criminal does in this verse... But when you get to verse 16, it's something that the harlot does. And so just read verse 16 if you could. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. Notice the flattering words of the adulteress. That is perverse speech as well. So here the focus is on the perverse speech of the criminal who wants you to shed innocent blood to get gain. But in the next slide I'll show you There are perverse things spoken by the harlot, but true wisdom will keep you from both. Now, notice here, ultimately, the person who leaves the path of uprightness is the criminal. And I want you to remember back in Proverbs 1.11, it's the criminal who wants to have financial gain by going after the innocent. In fact, it said in Proverbs 1.11, if they say that is the criminal, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause... You're not to follow after them. And so that's something that the youth in our culture need to hear, that the true wisdom of God would keep them from immoral gain, gaining by hurting other people. And again, bring that back to Jesus' ethic. Jesus' supreme ethic, do unto others as you'd want done unto you. Again, he says the whole of the law and the prophets hang on that. So for Jesus, that's the supreme ethic. And just think to yourself, would I want to be robbed? Well, if you don't want to be robbed, don't rob others. Would I want to be accosted on the street or have fireworks shot at me and my family? Well, then don't do it to others. That's the supreme justice that we see being taught by Christ and his ethic. Now, I want you to see here that in verse 15, notice it talks about, I'll pull up my pointer. Notice it says, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Remember in the book of Proverbs, there's only two ways. There's the way of the righteous and there's the way of the fool. The way of the old is typified as the way of the wise, but the way of the fool follows the criminal element and they go after immoral gain. The other thing I want to point out here is, remember back in Proverbs 1, 17 through 19, please turn your Bibles there. I want you to note that in Proverbs 1, 17 through 19, The criminal is depicted as the fool that doesn't understand their own actions bring them to destruction. And so the risk is if some 
young man would, or woman would follow suit, they're going to go to destruction as well. Remember, this is the analogy with that bird. They're a fool like the bird. Remember Proverbs 1, 17 through 19, where it says, Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. Notice verse 18, But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So remember that. Don't forget that metaphor. The idea of the bird, he sees the seed, but there's this net spread below the seed. And it has no idea that the net is going to kill them. In the same way, the criminal only sees the seed, the stuff that they want, and they don't know that the actions will lead them to destruction. I know so many friends in my life, when I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, they got into criminal activity, and some of them are dead as a result of it. And so this, this wisdom really is a generality, but you see these things played out in, in your own lives. You can attest to the fact that, yes, those who live by the sword, in fact, often die by the sword. Now, any comments or questions on that? Uh, otherwise, I'm going to move on to the next temptation that we're kept from, and that is the adulteress here seducing young men. Proverbs 2, 16 through 19, it says, again, the two, member is the purpose. So you're given this purpose statement. The second purpose for wisdom is to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. Now, dear ones, notice here in red where it says, to deliver you from the strange woman. The term strange woman, zair there for strange, literally means the other woman. It's someone who is other than your wife. That's a good way of thinking of it if you're a man. If you're a woman, it would be someone other than your husband. Okay, so the other woman. Now, notice in verse 17, what does she do? Notice she leaves the companion of her youth, and so, yes, she was married is the implication, this adulteress, and therefore she forgets the covenant of her God. The term covenant there in Hebrew, barith, um, sometimes we talk about cutting a covenant. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? The term would be karath barith. They cut a covenant. Well, the term barith here is an agreement between two parties. But what we have to wrestle with is what covenant is being referred to here. Some think perhaps it's a reference to the Mosaic covenant. I don't think it's a reference to the Mosaic Covenant. I think it's the covenant of marriage. Why? Because it's the covenant that she has made in her youth. It's the covenant of her God, but God sees marriage. God really does see marriage as a covenant before him. Now, one of the places we see this, and I'll put up the slides in a little bit, for this is in Genesis 2.24. It's always a passage I cite at weddings where it says, for this reason, a, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. The term cling there, devake, is used of Israel clinging to their God in the covenant. So God does really see the union of a man and a woman as a covenant relationship. And so she, this adulteress, is forsaking that covenant. And notice, what is the result of it? Well, the result of it, notice in verse 18, there's three things that happen. Number one, her own house dies. Does everyone see that? It says her house sinks down to death, right? So that's not good. 
You don't want to emulate or follow that. Number two, her tracks lead others to death. Does, notice everyone, it says her tracks lead to death. None who go after her return again. That's the third thing. None who follow the adulteress ever return back to the path of life. That is at least the risk. Okay? Yeah, Brian. In the, the context that this is, we're talking about married people and somebody who uh, leaves, uh, breaks the covenant yeah. and, and has a, an affair with an adulteress or something like that. But the yeah. destructive nature uh, often extends far beyond just those two people. Absolutely. And I think we see that even reflected in these latter verses, verses 18 through 19. It brings destruction. It brings death, separation from God, but also physical calamity upon people. Um, I've heard research done, you know, in our own culture where it'll say the greatest predictor of whether someone is going to be financially successful is whether or not they remain married. If they become married, if they remain married, you're far, it's, it's greater than having a great college degree. That's how important it is, you know, because why? Because it brings calamity, the idea of divorcing the wife of your youth or the husband of your youth. Now, again, these are generalities. There's always exceptions. But the, the book of Proverbs, remember, doesn't give you commands that you can take to the bank and say it always works out this way. These are general principles in life. As I mentioned earlier in other messages, if we can't see patterns or generalities, we really don't have wisdom. And when I was a, a, a college student in the early 90s, I remember hearing from professors who would say, well, you're generalizing. And I didn't have a comeback. I wasn't a believer back then. But if I were to sit in the classroom now, I would say, well, that's because you have to, to have wisdom. <laughs> um, if you slow, go too slow in an airplane, you generally stall. If you don't cross the street and you do that long enough without looking both ways, if you cross the street without looking both ways, generally you'll get hit. And if you don't have generalities, you don't have wisdom. Now, if you don't have specifics for the generalities then maybe your generalities don't hold up. And so that's one thing if you're ever giving um, a, a lecture and you're trying to explain a generality, give specifics. What I mean by that is this, and what I mean by that is this, and give examples. Therefore, you have some credence to your generalities. So again, without generalities, we don't have wisdom, and without specifics, we probably don't really have a generality. Okay? Something to think of. That's free of charge, right? All right, now, let's keep moving, though. I want to talk a little bit about the summary here. I want you to see that Solomon comes to an inference, and we know that because of the Hebrew term laman. Laman, he says, so. So that tips you off. Notice in the box, we're coming to an inference. It's something that Solomon is inferring from what he's said. He said, so, if you will follow wisdom, you don't go after the criminal, and you don't follow the adulteress, notice in blue. You will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Notice in blue, God's wisdom leads to living on a path of righteousness, a path that leads to life. Okay. Now, one thing we have to wrestle with is, wait a minute, we know that we're justified by faith alone. 
So what about this focus oftentimes in Ecclesiastes or you'll see in Proverbs, the focus on doing good? Well, in some sense, we see that in the New Testament, the idea that those who truly believe, they really act on their faith. And the passage that always comes to my mind is that Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, remember, for by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then in the very next verse, in verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So did God prepare beforehand those who would trust in him? Yes, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We see that in Ephesians 1. But he's also chosen the good works that the elect walk in before the foundation of the world as well. Now, are we saved by our good works? No, our good works accompany those who really believe. Why? Because you act on what you really believe. Uh, One of the analogies I like to give to my... uh, I had a teenager Bible study some years ago called Teen Community Bible Study. And something that I used for them is I I wanted them to think about the relationship between faith and works. And I said, think about an automobile that has an engine, and the engine makes the whole thing go. And the engine, I said, think of that as saving faith. But if you have saving faith, you have an operating engine in your vehicle, it necessarily produces exhaust. The exhaust are the works. So the idea is if you don't have exhaust works, you don't have a functioning engine saving faith. What makes the car go? It's the engine. It's the saving faith. But if you have that on, if it's operating, you're going to have exhaust. That's the relationship between faith and works. Think about it this way. Yes, Laverne. Hold on, we'll get you a microphone. So anything you say can and will be held against you. But also for you. We always say that. Um, as, As it's coming to you, think about the covenants, Genesis 15. Remember Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 22 Abraham acts on that to the point that he's willing to sacrifice his son, his only son. Remember, uh, I'm sorry, so, yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I heard it put a good way. It's not faith by works. It's faith that works. Amen. I love that. Very well said. It's a faith that works. Amen. Uh, That's exactly what James would say. James, remember in the book of James, he says faith without works is dead. He focuses on Genesis 22, Paul, talking about that you're justified by faith alone, Romans 4, he focuses on Genesis 15. But when we put Genesis 15 and Genesis 22 together, there's no contradiction. Abraham who believed is the Abraham who acted. Absolutely. And so that's the relationship between faith and works. Now, one other thing, and by the way, Laverne, excellent comment. Anything else on that? Anybody else? I thought I saw a hand, but it could be. Yeah, Bob. I was asked a question once, and I wasn't sure how to answer it, so I'm just going to kick it over to you. Uh-oh. <laughs> when we talk about synergism oh. versus monergism in salvation, which is yeah. just the work of God, yep. somebody asked, well, is sanctification synergism? And I couldn't answer. Yeah. The term's never used in that context. Right. But ultimately, God is at work through his means. Right. And as we believe God... He will use the means he's ordained to sanctify us. But sanctification 
doesn't isn't perfected until the resurrection of my right amen bob i think you're exactly right and um so monergism one we are solely regenerated by god's work alone synergism is that we're synergistically working with god in fact we'll talk about that if we get into our apologetic section here we talk about plagianism versus semi-plagianism and some of those things but you're absolutely right bob monergistically we're saved it's completely a work of god but what's interesting is the, the question is, does that play out in our sanctification? The one difference between us before we're a Christian and then after we're a Christian, a believer, is that we are given the Spirit. And so remember, prior to being a believer, we are dead in our transgressions. In fact, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, as Paul says in Romans 8.8. 8. But after we're regenerated... We really do now have the ability by the Spirit to do that which is pleasing to God. And so I know, Bob, you and I have talked about that years past. We've always said that it's really uh, a miss. It's, it's not a synergistic versus a monergistic issue per se, but we would affirm that when we are sanctified or transformed, it is through the same means that you and I were saved. So in other words, if we were saved by faith we also are going to be transformed by faith. It's not as if we went from a system of trusting God, justification, to a system of sanctification by works. That would be a misnomer. That would be a misunderstanding of the the various texts. So go to Hebrews chapter 11. Why does Rahab persevere and do what she does? Why does she send the spies um, or protect the spies by sending the people of Jericho the other way that want to find the spies because she really believes. Why does Moses stay with the people of God and suffer this torturous treatment at the hands of the Egyptians and suffer with the people of God? Because he really believes. That's why he perseveres. Uh, Why does Abraham persevere? Remember, when he's in the promised land, he never owns one part of it except the cave of Machpelah where he's able to bury his wife. Why does he do that? Well, the writer of Hebrews says because he believed. And so as he walked out his belief, he was sanctified by his belief, by his trust. And so that's why in Galatians 3, remember it says, um, how is it that you who began by the Spirit are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? In other words, they got the Spirit by faith, so they began justification by faith. And Paul is saying if you began by faith, why are you now trying to be sanctified by works? So what you and I have to realize is every time we gather together under the means of grace, what God is doing is he's graciously, through his means, enabling us to be sanctified, keeping the promises before us. Why do we do the Lord's Supper? To remember. Remember what? What Christ has done and what he's going to do. Why are we in the scripture? So that we keep focusing on the promises of God. And as we focus on the promises that God has given us, by faith, we are being transformed. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed. Remember the term transformed, metamorpho, a metamorphosis. We're going to go from the ugly caterpillar to the beautiful butterfly. But it's by the renewing of our mind, right? Why? Because as we think differently, as we believe, we start acting differently. So that's, I think, how I would answer it, Bob, is that the issue is whether or not we go from a system of faith alone in in justification and in sanctification we go to well we have to switch to works and you and I have fought that heresy 
um, even infected our church uh, some years ago. It keeps coming back because yeah. since works is the default position of the fallen human race mm. and gaining merit through works, people are attracted to it because we're still in this fallen world. Yeah. But once we're born of God, we're not dead right. because dead sinners are made alive. Yes. And so it, the, the Lord has made promises to those who are alive. And as we feed the flock the pure word of God, people will hunger for more of that. Amen. And the most common email that we get through this critical issues, just got another one this last week or two or three, yeah. actually. Well, I know this is true. I need this. But everybody in the church thinks there's something wrong with me. Because I want the Word of God taught. And that is, and Jessica knows more than I do because she does the, um, I don't have any social media. Yeah. So I don't know what everybody's saying, but I get emails. Yeah. So it's hard to answer that because somebody's in church, they're hungry. Please tell me the Word of God. Yeah. And what they hear is do more signs and wonders, do more, try harder, become woke. Right, right. Uh, there's all these things, and people don't know what to do. Yeah. And if if the word of God is purely taught, some people will just whether they know the Lord or not, or tolerate hearing it. Right. But if we don't teach the word. Yes. How will the ones who are born of God ever grow? Amen. They're not going to grow because you give them the sow's food. Right. right. Sort of an allegory of the prodigal son. Yeah. But uh, one old Pentecostal preacher said, if you put the slop out, the pigs will come. If you give the pure word of God, the sons will come. Wow. I don't know if that's a valid implication of the prodigal son, but it's true in yeah. a way. Yeah, very good. That's a good analogy. So yeah. a lot of slop has been put out. <laughs> that is a problem. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. The same is true with what we call sanctification or transformation, we still need the Word of God. Yes, Laverne. Yeah, when you were speaking about metamorphi, it made me think, the transformation, it made me think about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was mm. metamorphosized. Wow. Yeah, transfigured. Yeah, yeah absolutely, so, yeah. But for us, that won't happen until we see him when we'll be like him. But we are absolutely. growing in that through the that's sanctification right. process. Well said. That's a very good analogy. You're right. Um, ultimately, we're not given a resurrected body, and we won't be, have sinless perfection, as it were, until glory. But right, we're supposed to act on what we have now. We're supposed to live that out now, the reality of it, in our obedience to Christ. Absolutely. Yes, Jessica. No, that's good. I was thinking, too, a lot of times when you get in conversations, especially with people who kind of tend towards the pietism and yeah. you need to work, 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 and they they always go to Philippians where it says, work mm. out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then what comes right after that? And that's, <laughs> and I was just going to say, and then they always leave out the next verse, which says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Amen. So, yes, we do our good works, but we do them because... God is at work in yes. us. Amen. And how do we know what his will is? Through his word, not through our works. Amen. Through his word. Well, son, as you're saying that, Jessica, I was thinking about in John 10, 27 through 28, where Jesus gives the promise, my sheep hear my voice, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. 
He's negating even the possibility of future perishing. Why? Because he's keeping them by his power. We're kept in his hand. In fact, your mom, when she gives an email, it always says, held in his grip. And it's a reference back to that verse, and it's exactly right. So from first to last, it's the power of God that saves and and, uh, sanctifies and brings us to glory. So absolutely. And yes, when you and I are being transformed, it's not by going to a system of works. That's what happened. Remember in Galatia, they said, well, we we began with faith, but we're going to go to the circumcision model. We need to do certain things. Well, no, Paul said that's an attack on grace itself. Yes, Rich. Yeah, Hebrews 10.29. I'm blown away by this passage because... I used to think, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, they say potato, I say potato, whatever. You know, maybe it's just not that big of a deal. But I've learned through this Hebrews passage how immensely important this issue is because it's treating the blood of Christ as a common thing. If, If I'm treating my ability before Jesus Christ as synergistic, like I contribute, it's actually trampling on the cross of Christ. It's Amen. actually insulting the spirit of grace. Yeah. It's actually treating Jesus Christ as a common thing. Yes. And then in the next verse, it goes on to say, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Mm-hmm. These are not adulterers and adulteresses it's talking about in this passage. This is talking about people who equate their ability before Jesus Christ. Yes. And these are fighting words to God. You don't do that. So much so that they die and they stand before God and they say, Lord, Lord, look what I've done for you. And he goes, I don't even know you. Get out of my face. Go to hell. I mean, that's as severe as it gets. (laughs) Yes, it is. Considering the cross of Christ as something common is what those who are uh, trying to be justified by works are doing. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And what's interesting is that's something that the Lord does. In fact, remember, in, it's quoted in Romans 12, 19, we can let the vengeance be the Lord's. It's something that we don't have to exact up upon the enemies of God. We give that over to God himself. Do you remember in, in Deuteronomy 32, 35, right after that, do you remember what the text says? It says, surely in due time their foot will slip. And if you remember, that was the basis of probably the most famous sermon ever given on American soil, which was from Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what's interesting about that, uh, Rich, is that he gave a sermon in which he really explained what the wrath of God will look like. He kind of flushed it out and put detail in it. And I'm not advocating that we all preach this way, but what I am saying is, That was certainly not a seeker-sensitive message. I listened to that, ironically, back in 2005. I'm coming back from my cabin, and there was a huge tornado outbreak. It was the worst tornadoes we've ever had. And I was with my dad, and we're listening to the Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was, um, it's on our CD, and it's Max McLean who reads it. And you know his voice is very good. You think you have Jonathan Edwards with you in your car. But I'll never forget that. It was very effective. We're listening to sinners in the hands of an angry God talking about damnation and tornadoes are following us. And uh, I just never forget the effect of that. But yes, those who reject Christ and trample upon his name, they really have nothing but vengeance to look forward to. That's absolutely right. Um, yeah, Brian. About 28 years ago when I started sitting under Bob's teaching, we were in the book of Hebrews. Yes. And we went through, when we got to this point of uh, Hebrews 10, 26 through, what is it, 30? 
one. Yeah. Um, I was. I made Bob a refrigerator magnet, that because you would go to these Christian bookstores and everything was real touchy feely to put on your refrigerator. Sure. But I took a little piece of wood burning kit and burned out a, a message for Bob and put a magnet on the back and lacquered it. And, and the last thing it said was, "It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God." So yeah. when people come into your house and and then they look at your refrigerator. <laughs> It's not so touchy-feely. <laughs> That's a good conversation starter, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> That's the direct method, right? <laughs> yeah. That is funny. Yeah. Very good. And by the way, um, in the previous slide, I forgot to mention, that's one thing we have to ask ourselves. With the criminal element, they're always not restrained in this world. And so what do we do? Do we say, well, God is just as unjust if he doesn't repay all criminals here and now that is through the legal system well no because vengeance is his and so one thing that i think we have to keep in mind and we're going to learn this when we get to matthew 5 is we have the right to restrain evil as citizens i'll talk about when jesus says if they slap you on your cheek offer them your other i'm going to talk about how that's about insult not assault and so we have the right to restrain evil but we don't have the right to go meet out vengeance. And there's a difference. One is about defense. One of, the other is about getting even. And so that's something we have to leave to God. And it's difficult sometimes when you see great injustices being done to always give it to God, knowing that ultimately no one will escape his justice. What's interesting is we as Christians and believers have a ministry of reconciliation where what we're really trying to do daily is take enemies, which are God and people, and bring human beings on God's terms so they're no longer enemies, but rather they're adopted as sons and daughters. And so do you see how that would be incongruous if you and I are always seeking out to put vengeance upon people? No, we're not vengeance seekers. We're grace seekers. We want to see others seek grace. Now, again, at the same time, the role of the government is to restrain evil, and that's the role of it. And we can restrain evil. We don't allow the innocent to be beaten and murdered. We should be against that, and we'll talk about that. But again, in the book of Proverbs, it talks about generally when people live out an immoral lifestyle as a criminal, they will suffer the consequences here and now. If they don't, vengeance is still the Lord's in eternity. So yeah, Rich. Uh, isn't that the whole thing of social justice is we feel like, well, we got to bring about justice, God's justice, and God says, no, vengeance is mine. It is I who will repay that's my job, not your job. So it's like stay in your lane, brother. I mean, what do you think yeah. you're doing? I mean, social justice is not God's idea at all. Yeah, absolutely, Rich. Um, social justice is really Marxism. It's a different religion. And so the goal in the social justice movements is to take from the haves and give to the have-nots to build a utopia and a perfection. But we as believers have a worldview where we say, well, perfection comes when Christ comes. And so our goal isn't to take from the haves and give to the have-nots. In fact, remember in the Law of Moses, I think if I recall right, it's Exodus 23, they were not to give favor to the poor in a dispute. Why? Well, because the goal wasn't just take from the haves and give to the have-nots. The goal was to mete out true justice. So justice was determined by the facts of the case. The poor person may have been in the wrong or the wealthy person may have been in the wrong. But the facts of the case decided it, not their financial status. 
And so that has been replaced by Marxism, which says no matter how evil that person is, if they're poor, they're always right. And what we're saying is that's not true justice. That's not justice as the Bible has defined it, as the Western world has been built upon the foundation of Moses, the Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, again, we're not trying to bring a kingdom, but we should see at the end of the day, someone's religion will dominate the ethics of the land. And my whole point is why let it be the Marxist ethic? right? If you have two choices, would you rather have the Marxist ethic or the Christian ethic? Not that everyone's a believer, but which ethic do you want to dominate? Well, I'd rather have the Christian one because then you really have equality, something that at least approaches that in in the world. So yeah, social justice is really a form of Marxism, taking from the haves, giving to the have-nots. By the way, um, anybody in here read Mark Levin's book, American Marxism? It's a very good book. And in the book, he's a very good scholar. He talks about Hegel, and Bob, you would enjoy this. In his studies of Hegel, one thing that Hegel defined was that, remember, Hegel believes that God is drawing all things into himself. He's a real panentheist. But the final expression of that, of humans really becoming like God, was the state. The state was uberalis. It was above all things for Hegel because that was the final expression of humanity. Humanity's ultimate expression for him was the state. And so you start seeing that where as we slide towards Marxism and Hegel, individuals are thrown under the bus for the demands of the state, all in the name of social justice. But what's interesting is in the Bible, it's the individual that matters. Jesus talks about if there's one sheep that's the lost, he goes after the one rather than the 99, right? Think about all of heaven rejoices when one sinner Repents. That's how precious the individual is. Why? Because individuals are created in the image of God, not the state. The state, in fact, that humans build is often at odds with God in rebellion. In fact, all the nations will come against him and he'll have to throw them down. But the individual is made in the image of God in their souls of eternal worth. And that's why all of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. But again, are we going to be those who stand up for the individual? or the state uberalis. And state uberalis comes from social justice. Absolutely. Now, one thing, it's funny that ties into this. A very good segue. Thank you. The check's in the mail, Rich. I want you to look at, notice this promise that the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. Does everyone see that promise? And again, remember in Proverbs, it's a generality. But remember, this is a generality that has a promise from God himself In the book of Deuteronomy, he gave the promises. Remember, you had that antiphonal singing back and forth at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the blessings and the curses. And those who would obey the law of Moses had a promise from God that they would remain in the land and that he would fight on their behalf. Okay? But what's interesting to me about this is you say, well, wait, the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. What about now? We're not living under the Mosaic Covenant in a theocratic kingdom. America is not that. But what's interesting is I think we can apply this to the ultimate promised land. The ultimate promised land, for those who believe and obey, they will have a kingdom. And so, in a sense, this applies to the future age, where Christ will be reigning upon the earth, and those who have believed and obey will be with him. And that's ultimately, day after day, what we should live for. Um, You know, as you grow older, you have dreams. You say, well, I dream of getting a job. And then you get a job. And you think, well, that's not 
the greatest. <laughs> I mean, it's not, jobs are good, but I mean, you're thinking, well, okay, if that's, this is all there is, you know, but then you start dreaming to become a believer. That's what happened to me. And I started realizing that the real dream, the ultimate goal, maybe say it that way, is the kingdom. That's where our goal is, right? And yeah, Laverne, we'll get you a, a microphone here. And what I'm going to do is, um, as the microphone's coming to you, I'm going to just mention, I will, I'll, read Isaiah, I'll read Isaiah after you, but think about Isaiah 2, 2 through 4 as a passage that should inform our dream, our goal of the future, and what it looks like to enjoy this kingdom that will be upon the earth. And we'll talk about that. Yeah, Laverne. Okay, in the millennial kingdom, we're going to be in our heavenly bodies, ruling yes. and reigning with Christ. Yes. But the people who are ushered in are not Christian, are they? I mean, they are... Um, I know the separation of the sheep and the lambs comes be coming into that kingdom, right? Yeah, the sheep and the goats judgment. The, sheep the, and the, goats, the, the issue yeah. is when does that judgment occur? And what I, I take that judgment to be, the sheep and the goats, is I take that to be a general expression, a summary. So, in other words, it's flushed out over time. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say Bob and I are preaching and we say Christ is coming to bring a kingdom for his people but wrath upon his enemies. What I'm doing is I'm giving a summary statement, and Bob is as well when we're doing that. We know that there's an order to it. So, for example, in the 70, 70th week of Daniel, and I know you know this well, Laverne, the last seven years, Christ is going to pour his wrath upon the planet. I believe he raptures the church prior to it, mm-hmm. and his wrath is poured out. In fact, I think it's synonymous with the day of the Lord. And so there's an order to that. And I think that that's what you're kind of describing there in Matthew uh, 25. The sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goats, either the sheep go into the kingdom and the goats don't. Right. That happens at a different time. Do you see what I'm saying? But he's giving a summary statement at that point. So I do believe the millennial kingdom will be inhabited by unbelievers as well as believers. And one of the reasons I believe that is, do you remember, for example, in Zechariah 14, the nations will be forced to go up to worship the king, that is the Lord, in Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they don't go, he will not send rain upon their land. Okay, so in other words, you and I as believers, we can't wait to go up to to worship the Lord, right? We're going to be in our resurrected bodies. We're no longer going to be sinning. So obviously he's compelling some who don't want to go, and they therefore must be unbelievers. And so however the unbelievers are there, we know that the millennial kingdom will contain them. So it'll have both believers and unbelievers there. Does, does that help? Well, yeah, except that I was just thinking that the Christians, we're going to go up in the rapture, and then yeah. the tribulation comes. Are we talking about the tribulation saints are the ones that are going to be there? Um, I, I believe all believers will be in the millennial kingdom. Yeah, And exactly what kind of um, role that we all have, I don't know what Christ will give us, but we'll all be there. Yeah. Okay. That's how I would understand it. All right. Thank you. Yeah, very good, Laverne. Thank you. Yeah, and Brian. Getting back to the millennial kingdom, doesn't it also say Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron? To me, that means there's not going to be believers at that time as well, correct? That there's not going to be what? That there will not be some believers there. If he has a rule with a rod of iron, I mean, if you're a believer, you're going to follow what Jesus says. Right? Absolutely, and, and we will want to, and we will do it perfectly, being in our resurrected bodies. We'll be glorified, so we'll no longer sin. Um, but what comes to my mind as you say that, think about, remember 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's angry 
He says, why are you bringing lawsuits? Don't you know that you're going to be judging the angels? So you think about the right to rule and reign with Christ as one in which we're given authority. So after the 70th week of Daniel in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be this reversal where you and I who are now the, the downtrodden, the one that the world doesn't listen to, the ones who are persecuted and thrown in jail, we're going to be the ones who are going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. And, and so you're absolutely right. And, and you see a, a good summary of that in Psalm 2, where the nations take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. But he who sits in heaven scoffs at them, right? He's going to throw them down with the sun. That's right, absolutely. And so I just want to read this Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. I'm sorry, Brian, was that it or did you have more? Good, good. Let's read Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. And it's just a great summary to keep in our minds about the great promise of this millennial kingdom where Isaiah said this. He says, Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, remember Lord all caps there is Yahweh, his covenant name, it will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Stop right there. Notice this geographical change that's also alluded to in Zechariah 14. Some people say, is it symbolic? They'll ask the question, is it symbolic or is it literal? I say yes. I think it's literal, but it's also symbolic of Christ's rule. But it's also literal. I think we just take it literally. It's going to be raised up, and the rest of the land around it, remember, will be made up like a plain. So in verse 3, it says, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. So do you see the sense of perfection that will come upon the, the world? It doesn't come about through the Hegelian dialectic, taking from the haves, giving to the have-nots, as Marx would say. It doesn't come about by that. It comes about by Jesus Christ bringing his kingdom. And so we're going to be partakers in that. That's where the upright will live. Yes, Bob. Sars, now, it's interesting. The utopia, the Greek word, ooh, it's not actually a word, but somebody coined yeah. it from the Greek. Ooh here means not. Tapas is place. <laughs> no place. And so utopia <laughs> is no, not a place. <laughs> and so... Humans are always trying to create what won't happen. Right. That's uh, a great and point. And we're not claiming the millennium is utopia. Right. Because there's a judgment at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. And so the, the new heavens and the new earth is after the, yeah. the judgment. Right. The amen. So. Yeah, amen. That's right. Yeah, so anyway, I just want you to see that living on the land is something that we say, well, it's not just for the people living under the Mosaic Covenant, a promise, but it's a promise for us that one day we will be upon the earth in which Christ reigns. Yes. Yeah, I just heard that the dude who owns the Timberwolves is trying to create a utopian. Do you hear about that? He's going to make a new city out, a brand new, call it Livonia or something like that. It'll be a perfect city. Everybody will get along. But it's the dude who owns the Timberwolves. He's a bajillionaire, and he's going to build his own perfect city (laughs) as utopia. Uh, that's one city you probably want to avoid. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks, Rich. I didn't know about that. That's very interesting. Um, what's interesting, too, I want you to see here where it says, notice in verse 22, it says, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Do you see the promise in Proverbs where the righteous will inherit this land and the unrighteous won't? It's very binary. 
Laverne, you mentioned something, uh, the, I, the Matthew 25 judgment. There's sheep, there's sheep and there's goats, right? It's binary. That's something that has been rejected by the postmodern movement. When I was at Bethel Seminary, I had just left the airline industry, and the man who was giving the orientation lecture was Doug Paget. Um, that's who Bob ended up debating, and it was broadcast by KKMS Radio. Well, Doug Paget, the first thing out of his mouth is, we have to stop binary reductionism now. Whenever you begin a lecture by saying we have to stop binary reductionism now, I think you're trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. So I'm sitting there as an airline pilot, and I'm thinking, binary, it's either or. And so he doesn't, because remember, I'm not used to this theological speak at that time. And reductionism, he doesn't want to, and so I'm reasoning in my mind, he doesn't want to reduce everything to either or. And I never forget, I sat there and I thought, well, my gear is either up or it's down. And I never forget, I, this, my, this thought actually came to my mind. I thought, well, Barry Manilow, you either have people who love him or hate him. <laughs> right? But I thought of the sheep and the goats that Laverne brought up. I, so my mind was just wandering, you know, like like little... And uh, anyway, so I thought a lot of life is either or, right? And so you and I have to be those to say it's either or. And we have to be willing to say, I am post-postmodern. I will tell the world that you're either going to be in Christ's kingdom or you're not. And this goes all the way back to Solomon where he's saying those who believe and obey, they're going to live on the land. But those who don't, they're not going to make it. They're not going to be in this glorious kingdom. And as Bob mentioned just minutes ago, the ultimate expression of that finds itself in the eternal states, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. That's where the people of God will be who believed and obeyed. But those who didn't are going to be in the lake of fire, forever separated from their God, which is what death is ultimately all about. That's where it leads. And so that's the summary. And again, the two big errors and sins that we're going to avoid if we have the wisdom of God is we're not going to follow the criminal element and try to get immoral gain and we're not going to follow the lips of the adulteress, all right? But I want to talk a little bit about the significance of God's design for marriage because in this passage, it addresses the problem of the adulteress destroying this covenant, the covenant that she had with her God, and all of the death that it brings upon humanity uh, that is the broken marriages. And so I want to talk about it, the design for marriage. I want to read to you this passage, Genesis 2, 24 through 25, this is where Moses recorded this. He said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So notice here in Genesis 2, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Does everyone see that? Later, when sin enters into the picture, we'll see this in Genesis 3, they are naked and they're ashamed. And I'll, I'll play off of that in just a bit. But first of all, I want you to see that to Moses... He sees this as being a covenant. Notice the term join there, devak in Hebrew. I'm going to show you where else it's used. Deuteronomy 10, 20. This is a command to the Israelites. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. Ah, same verb. Cling to him and you shall swear by his name. So this clinging to their God is the same term that's used here of a man clinging to his wife. So just as Israel is to be one with their God, they're to cling to him, to have no other gods. The man is to have no other wives, no other women. Davake, you cling to her. That's it. 
That's the one, you're, you're one flesh. So that's the idea of covenant. And so do you understand then when we saw in Proverbs 2, 17, it said, she is the one, the adulteress, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Solomon isn't blowing bubbles. He knows the Hebrew well. He knows that marriage really is a covenant that God sees between a man and a woman, that they really are brought together and to become one. So go back to this idea of being naked. I'll never forget R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul, how many in here remember R.C. Sproul? Most of you probably have, yes. R.C. Sproul talked about how sin, when sin entered the picture, people realized that they were naked and they were afraid. And uh, he gives this story where he said, you know, every now and then you'll watch a baseball game and he talks about the lack, the lack of shame that people have. There will be a streaker. And he says, but you notice a man who runs naked on the football field or the baseball field, the streaker, notice he's not called the stroller. <laughs> and uh, his whole point was there still was shame in being naked. I'll never forget that. They're streakers, but they're not strollers. There's still shame there, isn't there? Well, his point was when you look at marriage, marriage is the place where it's safe again for a man and woman to be naked. And again, not just physically, but also emotionally and all that that term means. But what happens is in a man and a woman's relationship, if they divorce and they go to be with another, what it's saying to a person who's made in the image of God is, I've seen all you are and you're not sufficient. And the damage that that does to a human being is beyond words. So do you see then why God says you will cling to your wife or you will cling to your husband and you will covenant together and you're going to be one flesh? We see it's because it's the safe place to be naked again. And so it's not going to damage human beings. You see, the world says it's okay. It's okay to forsake your wife, to forsake your husband, and go out. And what they're really saying is it's okay to damage human beings made in the image of God. That's really what they're saying. And yet they'll claim that you who believe in the sanctity of marriage, that you're the mean-spirited one. Are you with me? But who's mean-spirited? Those who protect those who are made in the image of God or those who throw them asunder and tear them apart? Yes, Brian. And I would say, well, I don't say it. Other people say it, that it's not just marriage, but it's premarital sex. Absolutely. The the, the damage to the psyche of the female and the male uh, oftentimes is unrepairable. Right. It's that nakedness without commitment, and then it ends up destroying why? Because there's no commitment, there's no union, there's no one, they're, they're separated, and there's just damage done to human beings. Yeah, absolutely. So it applies. It applies whether someone is violating the marital covenant before marriage or after. Absolutely. So God isn't a prude. He's designed us, but it's within the confines of marriage the physical relationship is to occur. Um, let me show you, uh, I'm going to read Matthew here in just a moment. Um, in fact, let me read Matthew first before I put up the, or the Ephesians passage there. Let's read Matthew 19, 3 through 9, if you would turn your Bibles there. I want you to see the words that Jesus has for marriage and how he cites that Genesis 2.24. talks about God's design, and he comments on that too. Notice here in Matthew 19, we'll start in verse 3. And we'll read to verse 9. Notice it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, I'll stop there for just a moment before we get to verse 4. 
the issue at, at hand was there was a debate between the Hillel followers. There was a famous rabbi called Hillel, and then there was one called Shammai. And what Hillel, this famous rabbi, was teaching is that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. You didn't like the way she made the toast? Divorce. Obviously, right? It's the only answer out, right? You want your toast done right, right? Well, that's not how Shammai understood it. Shammai, another rabbi, said, no, it's only for infidelity. And so the Pharisees now are challenging Jesus and his understanding. So listen to how he answers. Verse 4, it says, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? There's Genesis 1.27. Notice verse 5, and said, for this reason, now this is Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So again, they're covenanted together. So notice in verse 6, he says, this is a summary, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So notice Jesus saying God has joined them together. If any man separates them, they're going against God. They're going against a covenant, a union that God has created. Verse 7, he says, They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's from Deuteronomy 24, if I recall. And Jesus responds and said, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another man commits adultery. So notice here, Jesus does take a side. He doesn't say, well, Hillel and Shammai both have their points. He's saying, no, Shammai is right. Shammai, the, the rabbi who said, no, you cannot get a divorce unless it's for infidelity, he is correct. Now, why would it be in the case of infidelity that it's allowed? Well, because there's already been a divorce. The woman is already, or the man they've already forsaken the other one and they're no longer one flesh. They've already broken the agreement. The covenant's broken. Now again, Jesus though is affirming that that is only given because of the hardness of heart. Even that. That more damage would not be done to human beings. But that shows us how precious marriage is. And again, this wisdom goes all the way back to the time of Solomon. Some 1,000 years, 900 some years Prior to the time of Christ, Solomon was teaching the same thing. That yes, those who go after the adulterous and the flattering words are in fact going to go to destruction. Let me show you another passage very important for marriage, Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Again, Paul had just talked about a man, remember, should love his wife as Christ loved the church, be willing to lay her, his life down for her. The woman was to submit unto him as the church submits unto Christ. When you get to Ephesians 5, 31, Paul says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined again to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's our Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Verse 32, it says, This mystery is great. Now stop there. What is this mystery? Well, the mystery that he says in red, he says, But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So here's, let me, because we don't have much time, in the red, I want you to see that what Paul understands marriage ultimately to be is really an object lesson of the union between Christ and the church. So, in other words, every time someone's married, their life together, being joined together, is an object lesson of a greater reality. That one day the ultimate groom is going to come, from the ultimate, come for the ultimate bride, the church. That's ultimately what it's about. Now, 
that also says that the union of Christ and the church is to inform how we understand marriage. It goes both ways. Um, in fact, we know that because notice in verse 33, he uses the nevertheless. Nevertheless, now he comes back from referring to Christ and the church. Notice he goes to the individual now. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Why do I put the nevertheless up there? Because it shows us, let me pull up my pointer. It shows us that indeed in verse 32, Paul is not talking about the individual, right? Why? Because he has to use a nevertheless, plain in, Hebrew, in Greek, to show us that now he is going to talk about an individual. So when he's talking about the mystery of Christ in the church, he's not, again, blowing smoke. He's really talking about marriage is an object lesson of the union of Christ and the church. I, I sat under a great scholar named Ardell Kennedy. He actually wrote a commentary in the book of Ephesians. And he said, in a lot of life, we have object lessons. You lie down at night and you rise in the morning. And in some sense, it's an object lesson of the resurrection. In fact, Jesus said of Lazarus when he died, he's asleep. It's a euphemism, but you can use those terms. We know something of what, it's, what it is to be set free from sin because we know something of what slaves are in the free man, right? The slave and the free. And so there's all these object lessons that we see in life that the Bible draws from. And in some sense, marriage is depicted as an object lesson of the great union before Christ and the church. Brothers and sisters, will Christ ever forsake his bride? No. Will we ever be allowed to break free from our groom? We, we would fail, certainly, left our own devices. But will Christ allow that? No. And so if we are to be one, and it, it's certain to happen, the idea is that the good and noble object lesson preserves that unity in marriage, one man, one woman, never to be divorced. That's why Solomon was giving us such, such great wisdom in saying... Don't follow the words of the flatterer, the other woman or the other man. Keep your marriage intact. Wisdom of the ages, wisdom that ultimately comes from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for wisdom. And I do pray for our marriages here at Gospel of Grace, that we would be people who forsake the words of the flatterers, that we'd be those who preserve our marriages, knowing that our marriage is a foreshadowing, and an object lesson of the great union of Christ and the church. We pray that our marriages would continue to be comprised of people dedicated to one another in love. I do thank you for my dear brothers and sisters. I thank you for their faith. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to persevere. I pray for Bob and his sermon. I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity to understand and to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of what he preaches to us. Now be with us and be with him in Jesus' name. Amen.